for cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. For millions of vacationers and snowbirds, a Dixie cup of orange juice at the Florida Welcome Center signals sand, sea, sun, and sunburns are just miles away. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm Mary Beth Lassiter. Welcome to Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells the stories of the changing American South. Squeeze in to learn how the Sunshine State became the Orange Juice State. Katie Jane Fernelius has the story. It's time for a break. Time to open your refrigerator for a refreshing taste of sunny Florida. America and apple pie, Coney Island and hot dogs. Frozen Florida orange juice. Florida and orange juice. Concentrate the juice of the most luscious sun-ripened Florida oranges for every six-ounce can. Florida's famous for citrus more than California because of orange juice. That's James Paget. He wrote his master's thesis on Florida oranges. Orange juice is Florida. California's fresh fruit. Orange juice is Florida. Reach into your refrigerator for a taste of sunny Florida. 100% pure, fresh frozen Florida orange juice. It's Minute Maid and Tropicana, Florida Natural. They set their sights here. All the orange juice companies, they have plants here in Florida. That's what made Florida citrus famous was the orange juice. Orange juice is the culinary and cultural endowment of Floridians, evoking fruitful groves, good health, and a sunny paradise. It may seem like a happy accident of climate, but by some accounts, Florida and orange juice are botanically destined to be together. In a 1937 pageant, the Florida State Horticultural Society produced a show called Golden Harvest, Romance of the Florida Citrus. I assumed this was an outdoor play that was probably pretty garish when it came to how it was displayed. I mean, if you read it, it's very cheesy and hokey to me, uh, very pompous. The pageant chronicled the epic of Florida oranges. From St. Augustine in the 16th century to agricultural innovations in citrus cultivation to the 1894 Big Freeze, which nearly killed off most of the state's citrus groves, all the way to the faithful farmers who stuck by their groves and ensured the future prosperity of both oranges and the state of Florida. When it comes to how Florida remembers its citrus history, it's vastly different from what you see in, say, California and other parts of the world. For much of the 19th century, Citrus farming was a cottage industry in Florida, markedly different from the economic behemoth it would later become. This was largely because oranges weren't really commonplace nationwide. If you didn't live in a place like California or Florida, oranges could be pretty hard to come by. You got to think, if me and you would have got an orange, if we would have lived in, say, New York City in the 1870s. Us getting an orange is like almost getting a PlayStation. It's just something you've never seen before. It's just this incredible thing. It's a treat that you have to enjoy. I love that PlayStation comparison because I think one of the things I've always remembered is that in Little House on the Prairie, 
um, they get an orange in their stocking for Christmas. Yeah. And I remember being a little kid being like, all right, big whoop. It's it's such an incredible treat for those kids. They never had it before. They may have read it and then biting into it. Could you imagine first biting into an orange? Especially like as like a 10-year-old, you bite into this juicy fruit, especially in a time where candy is not widespread <laughs> throughout the country. It's a incredible treat. And people really enjoyed that. Railroads expanded and sped up trade. More fresh fruit was readily available to more people more often. Rapidly, oranges transformed from a rare luxury to a grocery store staple. The Florida citrus industry grew, but honestly, it struggled to compete with its California counterparts. California's always had the edge over Florida when it comes to selling their whole fruit and market because of their climate. In order for the color of the orange to really show, you need cold weather. More, much more prone to have that in California. Here, it's more humid, sticky. Oranges here have always been more green. That don't mean that they're not edible. That don't mean that they're not as juicy as California oranges. But in presentation, if you're going to the store, what are you going to buy? You're going to buy that bright orange. You're not going to buy a half green one because people automatically think of green as being not ripe yet. So railroads delivered oranges across the country. But it was one particular kitchen tool that began to popularize oranges as the staple of a good diet, particularly breakfast. And that was the juicer. In 1916, citrus growers started promoting juice extractors alongside their produce. Advertisements from Sunkist claimed that orange juice was a key part of an American breakfast. They quoted doctors who lauded the health benefits of vitamin C. But the citrus industry also had less health-conscious motives. It took at least two to three oranges to make a cup of orange juice. If orange juice became a staple of breakfast, then Americans would buy even more oranges. But it was the Florida Department of Citrus who turned orange juice from something you made to something you bought when they helped develop frozen concentrated orange juice in the 1940s. Juice changes the game. Now, that orange doesn't have to be orange anymore. You want what's on the inside of that orange, and Florida capitalized on that. You see Florida really hankered down with their identity with oranges, with juice, because of it. Because they had so much success with concentrate. They could finally beat California at something. Concentrating orange juice involves washing whole oranges and then crushing every part of the orange, including the peel, to a juicy pulp pasteurizing that juice and removing the water from it through evaporation, then freezing the now concentrated juice. A consumer at home need only add water back in to make themselves a cup of OJ. Because it could be pasteurized and frozen, this juice could be stored for much longer than fresh oranges or fresh orange juice. Orange juice concentrate went on to populate frozen food aisles its sleek tinned cylinders advertising its provenance. And this frozen concentrated orange juice became a phenomenon and lined the pockets of the Florida Citrus Commission. But Florida didn't just leverage orange juice to sell oranges. It also leveraged orange juice to sell the state of Florida. At the New York World's Fair, the sunshine state of Florida is packing them in with this big show within a big show, 
compliments of the Florida Citrus Commission. As early as the 1933 World's Fair in Chicago, the Florida Citrus Commission and its members poured huge money into the state's World's Fair exhibits. These exhibits use citrus to sell Florida as a tropical paradise. At the 1964 World's Fair at Flushing Meadow Park in New York City, Florida's three-acre exhibit featured a 110-foot illuminated citrus tower with striking orange panels. The tower was crowned by an ornamental orange the size of an elephant. And at the foot of the tower, visitors could receive a cup of fresh orange juice. But the Florida Citrus Commission didn't just stop there. They also sponsored a water ski show nearby. Well, this great crowd pleaser, the Florida Citrus Water Ski Show, is absolutely free to World's Fair visitors, presented four times each day and two times each night. The Florida Citrus Commission's dollars extended beyond gigantic World Fair exhibits. They sponsored the Citrus Bowl, a college football game that took place each year in Orlando. You are looking live at the Florida Citrus Bowl in Orlando, Florida, on a warm beginning to a new century. And the Sunshine Pavilion at Disney World, which featured the enchanted Tiki Room and the Orange Bird. And they hired brand spokespeople including former Miss America runner-up Anita Bryant. Florida told a story about itself through orange juice. Orange juice wasn't just a drink. It was a lifestyle. Tourism was a really big element in the economy. You know, selling oranges, that was a big part of the local economy. And in many ways, the idea was to create this image of Florida, you know, that was full of sunshine, full of health. And so I think that what was, you know, was being sold in those ads and sold in that image. That's Fred Fegis, professor in the School of Communication and Multimedia Studies at Florida Atlantic University. Now, what's happened since, of course, is that uh, Florida's economy has become a lot more diverse. And there's a lot more things going on in Florida than just growing orange juice or producing oranges. Uh, And in many ways, the whole kind of orange juice culture that was there back in the 70s, you know, really has sort of like, I don't want to say vanished, but it's nowhere near as prominent as it was, you know, back then. What was orange juice culture? Oh, orange juice culture was, oh, God. First of all, in terms of the decorating, okay, they, everything was decorated in these pastel colors, you know, a pastel blue, a pastel green, a pastel pink, you know, and they had this thing that they called the South Florida lifestyle. 70s and 80s, what was happening, of course, was a lot of people were moving down here from the Northeast and the Midwest. And so it was like, so how do I live in Florida? And so there was a lot of advice to people about how to sort of create your Florida lifestyle. And part of that, of course, was the orange juice. Orange orange juice was a central, I think, central element in that kind of, you know, Florida lifestyle, you know, image or thing that they were selling. Florida made orange juice, and orange juice helped make Florida. But that well-funded and marketed orange juice culture of the state 
would make orange juice a prime target in an upcoming civil rights battle. We'll discuss that battle after the break. When we come back, Orange Juice goes political. Katie Jane Fernelius examines the history of LGBTQ rights in Florida. What can that possibly have to do with orange juice? More than you might think, Mary Beth. Looking for an easy holiday gift? Leave it to the Southern Foodways Alliance. Purchase a membership for a friend and they'll receive a gift card and a subscription to Gravy. That's four issues of great stories that will remind them of your generosity throughout the year. Visit southernfoodways.org and click the yellow support option at the top of the page to purchase a gift membership by December 13th. Is everyone in your family already an SFA member? That's great! Shop our online store, yep, southernfoodways.org, and get them some SFA wear for the winter. In the first half of the episode, we followed the trajectory of how orange juice helped Florida citrus growers flourish, and then how the growers promoted the state through the beverage, creating a so-called orange juice culture. I spoke with Fred Fegis, who described that OJ culture for us, because he wrote a book titled Gay Rights and Moral Panic. His book chronicles the battle over a local non-discrimination ordinance in Miami-Dade County that was introduced in 1976. This ordinance would have banned discrimination based on sexual orientation. If it passed, this would mean that employment, housing, or public services couldn't be denied to you just because you were gay. At first, this ordinance produced little fanfare locally or nationally. But then... Anita Bryant got involved. Yes, Madam Orange Juice herself. Orange juice is like a day without sunshine. Orange juice, serve it generously from the Florida sunshine tree. You know, she was a national figure. She had been on national TV. People recognized her nationally. I mean, and she had this image as an all-American female who upheld traditional values and had a smile on her face and it was bright and sparkly and uh, all that other. So, she, I mean, she had a very positive, popular image. Anita Bryant may have once been Miss Oklahoma, but by this time, she had left her Midwestern roots behind and lived full-time in Miami. That's actually how she learned about this ordinance. And she partnered up with her pastor there to oppose it. That whole kind of religious, conservative religious population really had been uh, abandoned, not abandoned, but they just sort of like not been paying attention to very much in the 60s and in the 70s. In many ways, this was an issue, I think, you know, one of the first issues that allowed them to sort of like exert their voice about what was happening to the country culturally. And they said they didn't like it. Her opposition didn't just galvanize conservatives locally. It prompted a national reckoning. 
And just as Anita Bryant and the evangelical movement used this ordinance to speak up, the LGBT community across the United States used Anita Bryant and Florida Orange Juice to challenge that conservative messaging, cheekily boycotting Orange Juice. I work at this place called the Stonewall Library and Archives, and they have a big collection of orange juice artifacts. So it was a very popular kind of, you know, symbol. And it was was a fun symbol because basically you could do a lot with orange juice. And particularly orange juice as it became associated with Anita Bryant, you know, it was very easy to uh, ridiculize. You know, it was fun. It was fun. The piece I liked the best, though, is that the um, screwdriver, you know, which was made with vodka and orange juice, all of the gay bars around the country changed it to vodka and apple juice and called it the Anita Bryant (laughs) and then used that drink to raise money for the gay rights movement at the time. That's Ronnie Sandlow, an LGBT historian and native Floridian. As part of her opposition to that Miami ordinance, Anita Bryant launched the Save Our Children campaign in 1977. That same year, writing the momentum of Anita's campaign, Florida passed a law banning adoption by homosexuals. But Ronnie wouldn't learn about that law or Anita's campaign until two years later, when she decided to divorce her husband and come out of the closet. Yeah, I saw the Anita Bryant um, commercials, you know, for the orange juice. I thought, you know, they were clever. They were cute. But, but I mean, they really just sort of passed right over me, as did the whole women's movement at the time. And then in 1977, the ordinance happened. Anita Bryant happened. That passed right by me. When I came out in 1979, that new law was invoked to prevent me from having custody of my children. Mm. So, so as I became an activist, a wild, crazy, angry activist, my anger was really focused on Anita Bryant, a person who I'd never met, probably never would, and in, in reality never have. But nonetheless, I needed a target for my anger and she was it. For the record, that initial non-discrimination ordinance initially did pass in Miami, providing homosexuals protection from discrimination. But Anita Bryant's subsequent campaign to repeal the ordinance was also successful. So that protection didn't stand. In her memoir, Ronnie writes a chapter called Letter to Anita Bryant, where she addresses Anita and the impact her campaign had on Ronnie's life. Ronnie later adapted this chapter into a standalone play called Dear Anita Bryant. Anita Bryant, because she was so well known, she traveled all over the country and into Canada and brought uh, anti-gay work to the forefront everywhere. And I believe that it's her impact, her words, her actions, as horrible and hateful as they were, I believe that she solidified the gay community politically more than any other thing that had happened. And for that, I will always be grateful. A few years after that ordinance fight, 
Anita Bryant was let go as a spokeswoman for the Florida Citrus Commission. The commission actually congratulated her for exercising her free speech during her time as its spokeswoman. Today, Anita and Orange Juice remain a key symbol in American LGBT history of a landmark moment in the fight for gay rights. Yeah, this was the first national gay rights battle. And we lost. And, well, we lost in terms of what we were fighting for specifically, but on the other hand, we won big time. And you gotta remember, at that time, most of the lesbian and gay people were in the closet. She, she, in many ways, because she was doing this, she helped develop a kind of national identity or an identity as a national community for lesbian and gay people. Because basically, the one thing you all had now was Anita Bryant and, you know, opposition to Anita Bryant. Because Florida had so closely linked its state identity with orange juice, Orange juice became a useful symbol in political battles of the state. This really began with the gay community's opposition to Anita Bryant. But the threat of boycotting orange juice has come up in many other political debates in the decades since. Martin Luther King III raised the possibility of a boycott in the wake of the acquittal of George Zimmerman for the murder of Trayvon Martin. I mean, we may have to look at not consuming Florida orange juice. And Republican Fred Carger called for a boycott after the state moved its primary election date two months. We asked that the Florida primary be moved back to March, but the politicians refused. So effective today, we've launched a 30-day boycott of Florida orange juice. Natural diseases and hurricanes have thrashed the citrus industry in Florida, which is now second to Brazil in global production. Land devoted to citrus has declined as more and more citrus growers sell their land to real estate developers. Not to mention the fact that breakfast is less popular, as is juice, which many consumers now see as sugary excess instead of healthful vitamin C. Today, both orange juice production and consumption are on the decline, prompting some to begin writing a eulogy for the sunshine beverage of the 20th century. But orange juice still remains a powerful symbol of Florida. Florida is one of the fastest growing states in the union. It is the third most popular. We have more people than New York now, which blows my mind. These factors, particularly people moving here, have made real estate and development incredibly lucrative, incredibly lucrative. And that is hurting citrus more and more, too. There's a lot of concern as to how long it will uh, sustain. Um, uh, some people think within 20 to 30 years, it's going to be all gone. Uh, before long, you're going to have some growers just growing it just out of tradition. But as a money-making and especially a incredibly lucrative agricultural enterprise in this state, uh, you've seen its economic impact slowly start to dwindle. Now, that does not mean growers are still not trying their hardest to make something out of the Florida citrus industry. Uh, there's still a vibrant citrus industry here. Uh, it's just not what it once was. So I think to me, the future is more of a question mark. For Fred, who lives in Florida too, the orange juice culture is a tradition whose decline he honestly welcomes. You know, I don't wanna, you know, put you on the spot, but do you drink orange juice today? 
Not really. No, no. Actually, no. I never liked orange juice. You know, it was too sweet, too many calories, and it was really like, it, what does it do for you? You know. <laughs> <laughs> it brings you Florida sunshine to your day. That's what I need to bring. Oh no, I got so much Florida sunshine. You know, it's like that's why we stay inside during the summer to escape the Florida sunshine. Gravy was reported and produced by Katie Jane Fernelius, a journalist and radio producer based in New Orleans. Her work interrogates institutions and the stories they tell. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music. We thank Katie King for being our fact checker. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Visit us at southernfoodways.org to watch films, read your way through our event bibliographies, or listen to this podcast. While you're there, become a member or make a donation. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm Mary Beth Lassiter. Excited to lap up another episode of Gravy? Tell a friend. Pass the gravy book. There's plenty to go around. <laughs> <laughs>